Open your Bibles tonight to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21. Now, let me open our time with a question. Have you ever done anything or said anything in hopes of maybe saving your own hide or avoiding humiliation, and then you found out that somebody else bore the consequences of what you were trying to avoid? I'm sure we've all been there at some point in our lives. If something we have done, somebody else got blamed for or got hurt by. And this is where we're going to find King David in the next two chapters. Now, the events of our text were so significant in King David's life that they basically spurred two psalms uh, to be written by him. And we'll talk a little about some of the content of those psalms associated with our chapter tonight. Now, we also addressed an issue that took place last time as we examined chapter 20, where these two men who were of a kindred spirit had devised a plan for the sake of David's safety, as well as finding out exactly what was going on in King Saul's heart concerning David. Now, we'll get to the parallels between the two chapters in a moment and how they relate to one another. But I'll remind you, last week we entitled our time, A Survival Guide for Perilous Times. And we gleaned four truths from the actions of these two men, Jonathan, the son of King Saul, and David, the replacement for King Saul. Now, we learned that divine protection does not exclude personal planning. We learn that Satan is always going to try and exploit perilous times by trying to sow discord between God's people. He is an evil enemy. He kicks us when we're down. Amen? Now, we were also told that when rulers are in the wrong, we don't stop doing what's right. And doing the right thing is the right thing, even when the right thing's a hard thing, was our final concluding point. And we'll talk more about that a little bit tonight. But remember, Jonathan and David had devised a plan with the minds that God had given them. They came up with a way to strategize together and find out exactly what King Saul was thinking concerning the well-being of David. You know, we also found that there was a brief discussion about loyalty between these two men of a kindred spirit when David said, how come your dad showed up at Ramah? Are you on his side? Do you believe that I have sinned against your dad? And he said, if that's what you think, then just go ahead and kill me now. Don't bother taking me to Saul. And Jonathan was taken back by this and said, I did not know my dad was coming to Ramah. And I do not believe you have sinned against him. Now, we also learned that when Saul confronted Jonathan and he went into a rage, that didn't cause Jonathan to betray his friend and the bond and covenant that they had made together. And when the right thing wound up being a hard thing, the two men still did the right thing. And that was they parted ways. Jonathan went back to serve his father. David was on the lamb, so to speak. Now, we also noted that within the two men's practical approach to solve the uh, issue concerning Saul's intentions toward David, they resorted to something that commentators were a bit divided over. Now, in 1 Samuel 25 to 7, we were told that David said to Jonathan, indeed, tomorrow is the new moon. And we established through Leviticus that there was to be a sacrifice and feast on every new moon, which began the month. And I should not fail to sit with the king to eat, but let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all his family. 
And if he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is intended by him. Now, as we mentioned, commentators somehow found themselves in a place where they could say that David and Jonathan didn't really lie. David actually did go to Bethlehem. When the fact was, in the narrative, David said, I'm going to hide in the field until the evening of the third day. He never left the field. He stayed in a cave, hidden out of sight. Now, what that means is that David and Jonathan starts with L, ends with I'd. They what? They lied. They fabricated a lie. Now, this reminds us, pairing our two chapters together, of an old saying by a, uh, a poem by Sir Walter Scott uh, called Marmion. And we've all heard it. We've all probably said it. And it goes like this. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive. And David and Jonathan found themselves in a pressure situation. And they conceived the plan to deceive Saul. And now here David is without Jonathan in the city of Nob. And what worked once, he thought, well, then it'll work again. And as is true with lying, one lie led to another, and that led to another, and that led to another. But lying is not our subject tonight. Somebody say amen to that. Trusting is actually our subject tonight. David was in a tough spot. Saul's intentions and threats were real. And now David is running for his life. Now on top of that, David's kind of a celebrity because of what happened with Goliath. Besides the fact that he is the king's son-in-law. So here he is trying to hide as an easily recognizable personality and person. But instead of remembering how to lie his way out of a jam, David should have remembered who it was that called him and who told him he would be king. At this point in time, David wasn't king yet, but God told him he was going to be king. Now let me just say this. If God says you're going to be king, you're going to be king. Now David was in a tough spot to be sure, but... Rather than reverting to what worked last time, what he needed to remember about him who called him is what we need to remember when we're in a tough spot too. And that is, and here's our title tonight, he is able. God is able, amen? He is able. And Jude 24 and 25 says, now to him who is what? Able to keep you from doing what? Stumbling, David stumbled badly in our chapter, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory, with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Now listen, this didn't become true when Jude wrote it. Jude wrote it because it was always true. It was even true in David's time. God is able to keep us from stumbling. Now, Just as with any survival guide, there are things that we ought to do and there are things we ought not to do. And when we are in a situation like David's, remembering that the Lord is able is a better alternative than lying to protect your own skin. Now, out of chapter 21 and 22 of 1 Samuel were birth Psalm 34 and 56. And we'll lean on them a bit tonight as we look for some lessons learned by David after what happens because 
of his life. So, would you stand and read with me, please? First Samuel 21, we'll look at verses 1 through 6 initially and finish off the chapter uh, throughout the evening. First Samuel 21, 1 through 6. Now, David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. You may be seated. Now, after the tearful separation we were told of at the end of chapter 20, where both men wept, but David wept harder than Jonathan, he arrives in the city of Nob, where there was a tabernacle of the Lord established, and he meets with the high priest Ahimelech. His name means, my brother is king. And we'll find out in chapter 22 that he was the son of Ahitub, and he was therefore the great-grandson of Eli the priest. Now, Nob was not too far from Jerusalem. It was north of the city, according to Isaiah 10.32. And David arrives and meets Ahimelech. And he's in a pretty ragged state, having spent the night in uh, the field or a cave for three days. And now, having traveled to Nob, he has a tear-stained face. He arrives on a Sabbath day. He's unescorted, he's unarmed, and he's hungry. And Ahimelech seeks, uh, senses that something isn't kosher, and he became afraid and suspicious. But rather than telling Ahimelech the truth, David fabricates a false mission on behalf of the king that required haste on David's part. Now, the only reason David invented this story was that he was trying to allay the suspicions of the high priest because he didn't know where his loyalties were, and David did this for his own preservation. Now, we need to remember what David had experienced in 1 Samuel 16, 10 to 14, when Jesse, David's father, made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. So Samuel said to Jesse, send him and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord had troubled him. Now, David obviously knew the spirit had come upon him and he 
slew Goliath in the power of God's enabling. And God, I think, as he always does, guided the stone to the proper place, even though David had great skill in this area. It was still the Lord uh, who was conquering the adversaries of Israel. And David knew that the spirit had departed from Saul because David was the one who was sent for to play soothing music for Saul when this distressing spirit would come upon him. Now, it's important to note these things because these things were proof that the Lord had anointed and appointed David as king over Israel. Therefore, there was no reason for David to formulate this deceitful tale in order to protect himself. Now, David made plans in contrast to chapter 20 regarding a specific situation involving direct contact with Saul. And it seems as though the line in Sir Walter Scott's poem, the first practice of deception was now leading to a tangled web that was going to have grave consequences when we arrive in chapter 22. And David's lie would even lead to the death of others. Now, what David needed to remember and what we need to remember in times such as these is that the Lord is able. He will be our defense. And in hindsight of this event, David would later write in Psalm 34, 6 through 8, This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around, uh, camps all around those who fear him, and does what? Delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. David had a lapse of trust. He was moving in the realm of the flesh rather than being guided by the spirit. And the truth is, really, David could have gone to the new moon feast. David could have sat right next to Saul because the Lord had already told him he's going to be king. He didn't have to lie in that situation either because God had ordained David as the king. Now, we also need to recognize we shouldn't intentionally put ourselves in harm's way. And think, well, God's going to protect me if I jump off this building or anything other, uh, any other thing that would be as ridiculous as that. Unless the Lord has stated, put yourself in this situation and I'm going to protect you. So there's nothing wrong with the guys having a plan. They just didn't need to lie. Now, here's our first reminder about God being able. Listen, this is something we need to keep in our hearts and heads at all times. And that's just this. There are no circumstances from which God is unable to deliver. There are no circumstances from which God is unable to deliver. Say, he is able. Now, David comes to Nob under legitimate threat. He is on the run in fear for his life, and rightfully so. But he also is on the run with the memory and the history of a divine calling and enabling and anointing and protection and even a kindred spirit friendship with one who in the realm of the flesh should have been his enemy. After all, David was going to take Jonathan's job as Saul's replacement. Now think about this as well. 
We read in the history of Saul that he had gone out into battle and he had been a mighty warrior before he was consumed with his pride. Yet he throws his spear at David, something that he would certainly be adept at, and he misses David three times. God had been protecting David. David stood as a young man against a nine foot six giant and took him out with a sling and one smooth stone. God was on David's side. Now, looking back on the situation with the showbread and God's provision for David's hunger, he would also write in Psalm 34 about this very event. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack what? Any good thing. Listen, David did fear the Lord. He was having a momentary lapse into the flesh. And yet God was faithful and he fed him with what's called the showbread. It was 12 loaves of fresh bread that was to be set in the tabernacle, symbolically representing that God was the provider for the 12 tribes of Israel. And after the bread had sat there for the allotted amount of time. It was to be removed. And as David said, because it's already served its purpose and there's new bread there, this bread is now common. In other words, it can be eaten by others. Now, Israel had been given this very specific instruction concerning the showbread, and it was dedicated for these religious purposes. But there were some hungry men including the man after God's own heart who needed food. Now, in giving David and his men the bread, the priest may have broken the letter of the law, but he didn't break the spirit of the law. Now, the Pharisees condemned Jesus about breaking the law, which he did not do. He did not come to abolish or break the law. He came to do what? To fulfill the law. And indeed, he did by living his sinless life. And the Lord refuted their actions. Rather interestingly, when the Pharisees charged him of breaking the law, he pointed back to the spirit of the law and this very situation in 1 Samuel 21. We're told of in Mark 2, 23 through 28, that as he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of the grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest and ate uh, of the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests and also gave some to those who were with them. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the son of man, a messianic title, is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now, We need to remember God knows what he's doing. Amen. God knows what he's doing and he is able to deliver. He is able to provide. He is able to protect. And because of his great love with which he has loved us, which is constant, even when you're a person after God's own heart and you get into the flesh, God is still able and God still provides. Now, as I mentioned in Psalm 20 or Psalm 22, first Samuel 22, we're going to see that the actions of David and his lie were grave or the consequences, I should say. But what we need to remember tonight, what some of you, I believe, need to remember and take to heart is there are no circumstances from which God is unable 
to deliver. He can deliver us from the most catastrophic and cataclysmic of situations, even as we see with David. Now, things are bad enough here, but they're about to get worse in a few moments, and we'll see that in our final uh, section. Now, read with me 7 through 10 of uh, 1 Samuel 21, and we'll see how this thing progresses and see what Sir Walter Scott uh, wrote and how it's manifested here. Now we're told of a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. He had some type of uh, ceremonial fulfillment uh, to fulfill. And his name was Doeg, and he was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or sword? For I brought neither my sword nor my, nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, there is none like it, give it to me. Now, Doeg's kind of an interesting name. It means anxious or fearful. And it could well explain someone who is a coward, and we'll see his cowardly actions in the next chapter. Now, in seeing this Edomite, David becomes concerned and inquires about if there are any available weapons in the tabernacle or at Ahimelech's disposal. And he continues his deception by talking about the urgency of the matter and why he left without his own. Now, again, some have implied in the realm of the commentators that David wasn't actually lying. He really was on an urgent mission, and it really was because of the king. It was just packaged in a way that would be misleading. It was one of those little white lies. Is there such a thing? Well, John 8:44, Jesus said to his favorite group of hypocrites, he said, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan is the father of lies, and therefore lying is of his kingdom. Now, in the midst of his deception and lies, David receives another Significant reminder of God's faithfulness, but he doesn't seem to get the message. Ahimelech says there's nothing here except for the sword of Goliath that you used to cut off his head in the valley of Elah. It's wrapped in cloth behind the ephod, what the priest would wear and when he was carrying out his duties. And at this point, we might think that David's mind would have done a quick review of what happened back in the valley of Elah, how he defied the armies of the living God, and David made the declaration, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who dares defy the armies of the living God? He would remember, at least he should have, the fact that he felled the giant with that uh, single shot of a smooth stone from his sling, and then he cut off his head with that very sword. His conclusion should have been what he said to King Saul about conquering Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, 33 to 37, when David approached Saul about fighting Goliath, Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, 
Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. This should have been David's mindset. This should have been the history he was relying on of how God had dealt with him. But it's clear in light of what we're about to read that these thoughts never even entered David's mind when they should have been his thinking all along. He should have been thinking the Lord all the way through my life. He delivered me. From the paw of the lion and the bear, he delivered me from the nine foot six giant. He delivered me three times from Saul's attempts to kill him. And he's going to deliver him now because that was God's established pattern. But his mind didn't go there. He forgot about the anointing and appointing that first or that Samuel had given to him as a future king of Israel. Ahimelech says, there's only one sword here. And David says, if nothing like it, give it to me. Now, keep this in mind that he's carrying the sword he killed Goliath with when we arrive in our last section. Now, David has had ample evidence and reminders presented to him of God's faithfulness. Faithfulness to provide for him through the giving of the showbread and the presence of the sword he slew Goliath with. There's nothing in scripture that tells us how it arrived in Nob, but just coincidentally, David arrives unarmed and there is the very sword he killed Goliath with. Now, David needed the faith he had when he had but a sling rather than the sword of Goliath. Now, here's what we need to remember. We've stated this many times in the past, but here it is in point form. Listen, what God has promised, he is able to perform. What God has promised, he is able to perform. Our God is able, amen? Now, I want you to think about this. It's pretty silly, but it won't be the first time I've said something silly in a sermon. Now, could we not say that in order to be king, David had to be alive? Kind of a no-brainer, right? In order to be king, David had to be alive. So was he going to live through this situation? Yes, of course he was. He wasn't king at this point in time. And Romans 4, 16 to 24, this is one of those long reads, and I just couldn't find a place to cut it off because it's just awesome. Romans 4, 16 to 24, Paul says, Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, the very meaning of the name Abraham. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And again, talking about Abraham, not being weak in the faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness 
Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for who? Us. These verses are for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now listen, Abraham's circumstances were outside the normal boundaries for childbirth. But he was promised numberless descendants like the stars of the heavens and the sands of the seashore are the phrases God used to describe his descendants. And then on top of that, he changed, uh, changes his name from Abram, meaning high father, to Abraham, father of a multitude or father of many nations. And we're told that Abraham was about 100 years old and childless and Sarah was well beyond childbearing years. She was 90 years old. But this was of no consideration to him because he understood and was fully convinced that circumstances, including impossible circumstances, are of no consequence when it comes to God's ability to perform what he has promised. And the same is true for you and I. It doesn't matter how impossible our situation looks. It doesn't matter how deep our difficulties are. God is able. And there are no circumstances too great for him. And he will perform what he promised, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's illogical, and even when in the realm of the flesh and thinking of our minds, it is absolutely unbelievable. Now listen, we needed to read all that we did in Romans 4 so we could understand that we are included in such promises as those who believe in him who raised up Jesus from the dead. And therefore, when our circumstances look bleak like David's, we need to keep the faith. We cannot fall prey to the moment or the circumstance and miss the reminders of God's past and present faithfulness like the showbread for David and Goliath's sword. Those things were obviously from the hand of the Lord to remind David God was his provider and God was his protector. Now you may be here tonight, and most of you are, And maybe you're saying, you know what? I don't see any evidence of his provision right now. I don't see any evidence that he's protecting me right now. As a matter of fact, my provision in this season of life is rather meager. And I'm in need and all I can see is the bleakness of the moment and the circumstance I'm facing. Some of you may even be saying, where is God in all that I'm going through? Where is he in my circumstance and moment of despair? Let me remind us all of what Jesus said in John in 10.10, where he said, the thief does not come except to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and that you may have it how? More abundantly. That uh, phrase can be translated as super abundantly. Now listen, if you're wondering where the Lord is, Let me remind you that Satan wanted to kill you last night and all day long today. And the fact that you're here tells us that he is not far from you. And he has been watching over you. If Jesus said the thief does not come, speaking of Satan, except to steal, kill, and destroy, then that is absolutely true. 24-7-365. Amen? The devil hates you. He roams the earth seeking those whom he may devour. The devil wanted to take you out last night. The devil wanted to take you out on the way to church today. But Jesus said no. And the proof is you're here. Now what God has promised, he is able to perform because he is able. 
Let's wrap it up with a rather interesting set of verses in 11 through 15. I'm sorry, 10 through 15. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and his confidence was boosted and he took out the sword of Goliath. Oops, no, that's not what it says. And he was what? Very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gad. So he changed his behavior before him, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see, the man's a nut job. Loose paraphrase. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of a madman that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come in to my house, meaning into the king's presence? Now, just so we can see how far David has fallen into his flesh and fear in his efforts to escape Saul, we need to consider this scene. He has Goliath's sword, and he flees to Goliath's hometown. Now, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I don't think that was the right move to go hide amongst the Philistines, but we'll talk about why he did so. But please note here, even the Philistines recognized David was king over Israel. He seems to be the one that forgot. They knew the song that was sung by Israel after he slayed Goliath. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And this was the very thing that enraged Saul against David initially. David heard them. He fell into even greater fear than rather being reminded of God's faithfulness in the past. Now the enemies of Israel were reminding David that God had appointed him as king that he was the one who couldn't seem to grasp the idea that someday he would be. And here he is. He's in Gath, hometown of Goliath, carrying Goliath's sword. And God was able to perform what he had promised to David. But David just didn't see it. Now again, David writing in Psalm 34 and 56 regarding the situation of both Nob and Gath, he would write later in Psalm 56, 2 to 4, My enemies would hound me all day. For there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. He would later write in the same chapter in verse 13, For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Now, it's interesting that the heading of the introductory phrase of Psalm 56 says, To the chief musician set to the silent dove in distant lands, which is a Mitchum of David. Remember, when we study the Psalms, a Mitchum is a song sung by sopranos. Not the sopranos on the TV show, but the female high voices. Now, when the Philistines captured him, in Gath. So David, even though First uh, Samuel doesn't tell us, they actually captured him and took him to be uh, sentenced or executed, whatever their intentions were. Now, at his capture, he feigned madness, 
clawing at the door behind, uh, that he had been locked behind rather. And the last straw for Achish was rather interesting. And that was when he saw David foaming at the mouth and allowing saliva to drip down his beard. That's all that Achish could stand. He said, get this guy out of here. He's a nut. Now, why would he have such a reaction? Well, because no one in their right mind culturally would allow their beard to be in such a condition. It was an indignity to a man's beard uh, and an intolerable insult for him to have his beard in such a condition. Thus, Achish concluded, David has to be out of his mind to let his beard be in such a condition. Now, Achish, and he's also also called Abimelech, which is simply a title for Philistine king, says to his men, do I need another nut in the kingdom? We've already got enough of those here. Why did you bring this guy to me? Now, after this exchange, chapter 22, verse 1 says, David departed from there, meaning his plan worked and he escaped. But there were great consequences that we'll see in chapter 22. So here he is on the run from Saul. He hides in the last place. This is why he went to Gath. He hides in the last place that Saul is going to look for him. Goliath's hometown. Now, he has to play the fool in order to escape uh, Gath with his life. Now, this brings us to our last uh, applicational point, so to speak, and the last consideration and reminder that our God is able tonight, and he'll be able tomorrow. Amen? Now, here's what we need to remember from this lesson through David's actions. There is nothing the world has that is better than God's will. There is nothing the world has that is better than God's will. David ran to the home of Israel's enemies. And he had to act like he'd lost his mind in order to escape with his life. And listen, our enemy is constantly trying to push us back into our former lives. Push us back into our former place. Push us back into former poor decisions. And listen, we will have chosen to play the fool instead of standing on God's promises if we allow the devil to push us around. And thus David would say, again, back to Psalm 34 about this very scene in 1 to 5, David's conclusion and his hindsight being 2020, he said, I will bless the Lord when? At all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David says, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. Listen, David had come to realize that there was nothing awaiting him through being driven and governed by circumstance-based fears, but folly and foolishness. He didn't need to hide in Gath where only humiliation and shame awaited him. And the humble look to the Lord and are cheerful. That's what the meaning of radiant is. And they don't suffer the shame of face that David was thinking back on when he wrote Psalm 34. And when David first practiced to deceive, a tangled web was being weaved. And he got so off course that he looked to his enemies for protection from King Saul. Yet all the while, he had the promise of God through multiple reminders of God's past faithfulness and present provision. And the only thing awaiting David in the enemy's camp was shame. And the same is true for us. And this is what the enemy often tries to do with us. He tells us, 
God has forsaken you. You wouldn't be in the situation if God hadn't forsaken you. Just go back to the world. Go back to your old life. If he really cared about you, there wouldn't be these difficult circumstances. He tries to destroy our faith. He tries to steal our joy. And he would kill us if he could, because that's the only thing he has come to do. And Ephesians 2, 4 to 7 says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Listen, the threats against David's life are real. And the reason for concern and planting, planning rather, were legitimate. The faithfulness of God, though, was long proven. And listen, God was faithful to David, even after David lied. Even after he ran to the world, or his enemies, I should say, for his protection. Even after David played the fool. Anybody ever play the fool? Oh, thank you for the three honest people in there. Okay, there's some more. There we go. We've all done it. But let me remind you tonight, God still made him king. He still bore the moniker, the man after God's own heart. And he did so for one reason. Because God is able to bring us through our follies and our failures. Even when they are great like David's. Listen, the world has nothing better for us than what God has promised to us. And the Proverbs say in 26.11, As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Now, David had other follies in his life, but he never ran to the world for protection again. And this is why he remained the man after God's own heart and still became king. Listen, there's nothing good awaiting us in our old ways or in the world except for foolishness and folly. God has promised to be faithful. And he remains so today. And what he brings us to, he gets us through And he cannot deny himself because he is faithful even when our faith is wavering. And Paul would write to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not what? I'm not ashamed. For I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Paul with life experiences similar to David's, maybe maybe even as far as persecutions greater than David's. But he knew that God was going to keep him until the day he stood before him. And I believe the Lord would remind some here tonight to remember the past victories. Remember God's present faithfulness. He wants you to remember what Goliath's sword and the showbread were meant to communicate through to David, and that is victory through faith and trust in the one who is able. Listen, God has our situations well in hand. Come on, that's better than that. God has our situations well in hand. And there is no need to turn to the world or our old ways for help because he is able. And Father, we are grateful tonight for this chapter as ugly as it is and we thank you that you showed us the real life of those who you called your own 
with their failures, with their doubts, with their fear-based actions, even, Lord, as we see tonight, with their deceitful behavior. But we thank you, Lord, that we can understand better now exactly who you are and how kind you are and how your grace, Lord, enables us to continue even when we fall and to get up and rise again above the circumstances and not be like a dog that returns to a vomit and being a fool that repeats the same folly over and over. We thank you, Lord, that we have the ability to rise again when we've completely fallen. We thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you are able. So, Lord, I pray for all of us, for those who are in the valley right now, for those who will face it in the future, for those who will face it maybe in the distant future, that you would teach us through these verses and what David learned from them to do the same, to bless your name at all times and have a mouth continually filled with praise because you will protect us, you will provide for us. And as Paul said, we are going to make it home and someday be forever with you. We give you thanks that you are still able today to keep us from stumbling. Help us to walk in the power of the Spirit, we pray. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all the Wednesday night warriors said, Amen. He is able. Amen. And therefore we can go out, as we've been talking about recently, in confidence, our God confidence in him, recognizing that God has a tremendous track record of watching over us. And you know, he stretches us beyond the things that we would like to experience. Sometimes he takes us to places that we really don't want to walk through. Anybody got the been there, done that with that? But he's faithful because we're here tonight. He's watched over us. He who keeps Israel... Remember, Israel means governed by God or prince of God, and we are his uh, kings and princes or kings and priests to him forever. And therefore, he's going to be faithful to us, and he neither sleeps nor slumbers. He is always watching over us. His eyes are always roaming to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And as we made the case a few weeks ago, sometimes people with hearts loyal to him mess up. Somebody say amen. amen. But that doesn't change his faithfulness. Because when he made a promise, he is able to perform it, and he's going to keep it. And that is the God that we serve. You have Goliath's sword experiences in your life. You have showbread experiences in your life. You have situations like David has, where the choice wasn't the right one, and you wound up in Gath. But God didn't abandon you and didn't leave you there. And that's why David would rather later write Psalm 139, Even if I make my bed in hell, even there your hand shall guide me. God is faithful and he is able. Somebody say, would you all stand?